If you want to open up your Bible, we're going to be skipping around a little bit, but we're going to spend a lot of time in Revelation 21 and 22. So for everything else, we'll have the words on the screen or I'll reference it for you. But we are continuing our series on heaven, on heaven. Two weeks ago, we began this series on heaven, the life to come. The first week, we asked the question, what, what happens when we die? And last week, we had the privilege of hearing from my father on the question, what is heaven and why is it better? And next week, we're going to ask what is a little bit more serious question, which is, well, what about hell? But this week, we open up our biblical imagination a bit, and we ask this question, what's actually happening in heaven? What will we be doing in heaven? And it's important to address this because there is so much popular misunderstanding about heaven that pictures it in ways that are just flatly false, that are just, when you look at scripture, are obviously not the case. You know, people don't become angels when they die. You're not going to live as an angel forever. There aren't little babies with wings flying around playing harps. We aren't going to be lounging back on clouds. It's not Jesus karaoke forever. We're not disembodied souls in some mystical vacuum. The odds are you've probably been sold a false picture of heaven and what heaven is like. And that picture is probably not very enticing. And I wouldn't be surprised if what heaven sounds like is either boring or weird, because most versions of heaven, when they're popularly communicated, are either boring or weird. But the good news for you is that most of the popular conceptions of heaven are just false. So you can just throw out those old boring, weird conceptions of heaven, and we find out what Scripture says, and we find out it's both more true, because it's God's Word, and more beautiful, right? Lo and behold, when we find out that God's word has to say about heaven, we find out that it's a place that you want to be. It's a place that you want to be. And you might be thinking, well, of course I know I want to be in heaven because the opposite of heaven is hell, and that place sounds really bad. So even if heaven sounds boring, it doesn't sound terribly bad. So I think I would choose the boring over the bad. And I would understand that, but guess what? You don't have to make that concession because heaven isn't boring. It's not weird, and it's not an illusion or a figment of our imagination. It's a real place that some people are going to spend a real forever with the real God. And that's an incredible thing. So I want to share with you what God's word has to say about what's happening in heaven. And to kind of kick us off, I'm going to bring us back to where my father was last week in John 14, verses 1 through 7. John 14, verses 1 through 7. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples about where he's going. So I'm going to read this just to kind of recall our attention to John 14. And then I'll say this is the word of the Lord. Maybe you're kind of asking, well, why do you do that? Well, we do that because we want to give thanks for God's word. So you're invited to respond, thanks be to God. Let me read John 14, beginning in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and like we heard last week, he is describing the place that he is going to prepare for them as a place with many rooms, with many spaces, with many compartments. Here, he's talking about heaven, and he's using the language of home to talk about it. He's using the language of home to talk about it. Now, before heaven is our home, heaven is God's home. So when you ask the question, what is heaven, the first response is heaven is the place where God's blessed presence resides. Blessed presence. Now, that's not to say just God's general presence, because God is omnipresent. There is not a place where God is not. That includes hell, which we'll talk about next week. But when we talk about God's blessed presence, we're talking about something very specific. We're talking about the presence of God that you want to be in. We're talking about a presence that pulls you into deep joy. Can you, is there somebody in your life that you love to be around? Is there somebody in your life that when you see them walk through the doors, you're excited that they're now in the room? Is there somebody that's a friend to you, that's a great comfort to have near you in times of sorrow and suffering? You know that there are times in which having someone present with you is the sweetest thing. We know, even in the midst of terrible suffering, that we can endure great suffering if we are not alone while we endure it. Presence matters, and we know presence matters. And we become palpably aware of just how much presence the presence of comfort and peace and joy and love matters when we don't have it. Because if you've been in a season where you needed someone to be with you or to be near you in a moment of grief, sorrow, sadness, or suffering, and they weren't there, you know how lonely that is. You know how terrifying that can be. Presence matters. And listen, for all of the comforts that one on earth who loves you's presence means to you, the presence of God is what we were created to live in. You and I have desires in our heart that will not be met anywhere else but the presence of God. There are things, Ecclesiastes says eternity has been set in your heart. There are things, desires that you have of which there is no satisfaction Outside of the presence of God, you will only find their end, their fulfillment, their satisfaction in God's presence. See, heaven, before it's our home, it's God's home. And it's good to know that because it's where God's blessed presence resides. And let me tell you, you want to be near God's blessed presence. I think about Moses. Moses, after the story of the golden calf, maybe you remember this. The people sin against God by making the golden calf. God has released Israel from bondage in Egypt, and he's bringing them out. And now they're in between Egypt and the promised land. And they begin to doubt God. And while Moses is up on Mount Sinai, Aaron leads the people in building an altar, an idol, a golden calf. And they worship this golden calf. And as part of God's judgment, as Moses appeals to him in prayer, do you know what God says to Moses? God says to Moses, guess what? I'm going to give you the promised land, but I'm not going with you. I'm going to give you the promised land, but I'm not going with you. You're going to get the promised land, but you're not going to get my presence. Now, do you know how Moses responds? Moses, who has led the people out on the promise of the promised land, a land of bounty, a land flowing with milk and honey, a place where they will not be slaves, a place where they will rule. The promised land is everything earthly that they could ask for. 
And when Moses hears God say, I'm going to give you the promised land, but I'm not going with you because of the wickedness of the people. Do you know what Moses says? No. If we get the promised land, but we don't get you, we don't get what we need most. See, heaven, before it's a place of any other spiritual comfort, of seeing our lost loved ones, of spending forever in a paradise place, before it's any of those other places, it is the place where God's blessed presence is. What the Bible has to say about heaven, it assumes something about the believer. It assumes something about the Christian. And I think we need to check the assumption here. It assumes that you and I believe God's presence is better than anything else. What the Bible has to say about heaven assumes that you and I believe the presence of God is better than all of, other, all of the other gifts. Like if you got everything you ever wanted but you didn't get the presence of God, you'd come to God and say, I, I didn't get what I need most. I didn't, I, I didn't get what I want most. Now I wonder if we live our lives like the presence of God is the greatest thing God has to give us. I think oftentimes, and Scripture's full of examples of this, and my own life is too, I think oftentimes I'm a lot more excited about the gifts that God has to give than God himself. And I think a lot of times I hold God up for ransom, and I'm kind of like, well, where are, these all, where are all these other gifts at? Where are all these other blessings at? I've got this worry. Can you bring peace to this worry? I've got this fear. Can you release me from this fear? I have this need. Can you meet this need? I have this desire. Can you meet this desire? And listen, God invites us to bring all of those desires and requests to him, but he invites us to do that with one crucial understanding, that if we get everything but God, we end up with nothing. See, heaven assumes, what the Bible has to say about heaven is that you have come to believe the presence of God is the best thing. The Bible, actually, what it says about heaven, there are some great comforts there. There really are, and we're going to get to some of them. But it assumes at a baseline that what you want most is the presence of God. And so I would ask you, is that what you want most? Is that what you want most, the presence of God? Because that's the best part about heaven, is that God's there. Not just generally there, but his blessed presence is there. Have you tasted of that presence? Have, have you sat in it? If you haven't, it's okay. There's no shame. There's no condemnation. But God's inviting you to do that. And how is he inviting you to do that? Well, Jesus actually tells the disciples, like Thomas says, Thomas, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And what does Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Maybe you're going, okay, you're telling me that the blessed presence of God is the best thing. I don't know how to get it. It feels like maybe one time I had it at this camp, or maybe whenever I was 19 and in college, it was there for a moment, or maybe a few years ago, I felt there was a, there was a nearness to God, but it's evaporated. Where do I go to get the presence of God? Lord, we don't know the way. And what does Jesus say to you? It's me. I am the way, the truth. And the life. Jesus is not making an apologetic point here. He's not, you know, a lot of times people will say this and they're like, look, Jesus is the only way to God. It's the only way to heaven. And guess what? That's true. That's not the principal message behind what Jesus says here. He's not saying, okay, I know that you might go settle for another God, but don't do that. It's me. I'm the only way to the true God. I'm the only way to the true heaven. That's true. It's just not what Jesus has in mind here. What Jesus has in mind here is this. Sometimes, even those who have been close to Jesus, 
Sometimes even those who are like Thomas, who have followed Jesus around and heard the great things, sometimes those of us who have experienced at one point nearness to God in Jesus, we forget the way and we have to be reminded to come back to Jesus, to come back to Jesus. Because in Jesus, the blessed presence of God is located and confined in a unique way. John 14, Jesus gives us this hope of heaven. This hope that heaven is not only God's home, but it's God's home that he's inviting you to live in. He's inviting you to live in. A couple of weeks ago, we began to make this distinction between present heaven and future heaven. Present heaven is the heaven of now. Present heaven is where those who have died so far in the history of redemption in the world, that's where they have gone. It's where you and I, if we were to die today, we would go to present heaven. And this present heaven is a place that's prepared for you. And it's a good place. It's with God. It's not on earth. It's not in your final resurrection bodies, but you are with the Lord. If you, were, if you are a Christian and you were to die today, you would go to be with the Lord. That is present heaven. But the place that Jesus is preparing for us is not merely the present heaven. It's the future heaven. It's not just the place where we will be for a little while. It's the place we will be forever. It's the heaven that comes after the second coming of Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus has prepared a place for us. And present heaven one day is emptied out and it is actually moved. It's moved from the spiritual realm and it is moved to a place here on earth. Future heaven will be lived with Jesus, with God on the earth in our resurrected bodies forever. You see, our hope is not just momentary. It's not just a consolation and comfort after someone perishes. It is a future and forever reality for those who have come to Jesus so that they might once again live in the presence of God forever. So you might ask yourself, okay, well, what's happening in present heaven? What's going on in heaven right now? Okay? Now, I have not been surprised that in the last 20 or 30 years, we have received numerous books where people will recount some sort of heavenly vision. That has not surprised me. It's happened throughout the story of Scripture. It's happened throughout the history of the world. Sometimes I'm a bit skeptical of those accounts. One thing I am surprised by, all of the accounts of near-death experiences and visions of heaven are always visions of heaven as it is now and almost never of heaven as it will be in the future. You might find yourself asking, what's happening in heaven right now? Well, we don't need anything beyond what Scripture provides because the Bible provides us examples of what's happening in heaven right now. So let me give you some of these. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah the prophet is called up into the throne room of God. Do you know what's happening? Angels are circling around the throne, praising and worshiping God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Isaiah's vision of this throne room tells us a few things. It gives us a snapshot of what's happening in heaven right now. Heaven is characterized by the presence of God. Heaven is characterized right now by the presence of God. God isn't elsewhere but in heaven. He is in heaven right now. The Lord Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Angels and people who have gone on before are worshiping the Lord. It's marked by a pronounced sense of God's holiness. 
That's what the angels are singing and celebrating about the enthroned Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah, when he's caught up into the throne room, he is so uh, engaged by the holiness of God, his response is not, wow, this is pretty cool. Yeah. His response is, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. When Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God, his response isn't, you know what, I should go back and write a story about this. It is, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah is confronted by the holiness of God and subsequently we should recognize that present heaven is characterized by the holiness of God on display. Heaven right now is a showcase. It is a public demonstration of the holiness of God, of his beauty, of his perfection, of his wonder. Heaven is a place of worship. It's a place of worship and praise and adoration of God. Isaiah 6 shows us that heaven is a place that's marked by God's presence, that's marked by a profound sense of holiness, and that's marked by ongoing and continual praise. That's what's happening in present heaven right now. Praise Presence, holiness. In Luke 16, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, we get another snapshot. Jesus is telling the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man who paid no attention to poor and wounded Lazarus for his whole life. And then when they both die, the rich man goes to the depths of hell and Lazarus goes to the heights of heaven. And do you know what happens? What we get a picture of there? We get a picture that we can remember in present heaven. Lazarus and the rich man remember one another. The rich man remembers his life on earth. The rich man grieves his life on earth. The rich man grieves the unbelief and the hardness of heart of his brothers and his family. He, he begs Abraham, Father Abraham, would you send somebody back to tell my family what I wish I would have known? And Father Abraham says, no, a great chasm has been established. You cannot go back. You cannot go back. In, in present heaven, you remember. If you were to die today, as a Christian, to go into the world beyond, to life with God in the present heaven, you would have some semblance of remembrance of this life. You would know what's happening. You would know what's going on. It appears that the world remains visible in present heaven. We have some sort of way of being able to keep track of and to know what's happening, even if in a limited capacity. In present heaven, it's not just this complete, like, we don't just step into the void of unconsciousness. You know, some people think that the life to come, that life after death is what life before our birth was like. It's just this unconscious existence. There's no rem remembrance. There's no semblance of the life that we've just spent our lives living, short or long, that we just kind of go into the void and we live there in this uncertain void forever. But that's not what the story of Scripture seems to suggest, that we carry with us the stories, the hopes and the desires that we had this side of the present heaven. In Luke 23, verse 43, Jesus to the thief on the cross, I'm sure you're familiar, when the thief on the cross rightly identifies who Jesus is and he defends the innocence and the perfection of Christ to the other criminal who mocks and jeers at Jesus. What does Jesus tell him? Today you will be with me in paradise. In paradise, so the word, without getting into too much technical detail here. The word that Jesus uses for paradise, the Greek word that's used there, it's used throughout the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what's called the Septuagint, which would have been an active use in Jesus' day. It's used to translate the word Eden. 
So when Jesus tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, he's effectively saying to this fellow Jew, today you will be with me in Eden, a place of restoration, a good place, a place of activity, a place of fellowship with God and others. There is much that we know about present heaven. We know that it will be a place where God's presence resides. We know that it will be a place of good and holy activity. We know that it will be a place of praise and adoration of God. We know it will be a place where we have some semblance of remembrance of the life that we have lived, whether it's short or long. But I'll tell you, for everything that we know about present heaven, we know far more about future heaven. For everything that we know about where we would go today when we die, we know far more about where we will spend forever after Christ comes back and the resurrection of the dead. We know far more about what we will do forever in heaven, the place that we will live, not for a moment, but forever. We will pass through present heaven for what will appear to be a breath, a vapor, a short fleeting moment, but life forever with God in future heaven is all we will know forever. And it is open. The doors of future heaven are not shut. It is, there is no, no vacancy sign on future heaven. And the way to future heaven is in Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And Revelation 21 and 22 give us a picture of this. Revelation 21 and 22, we get a snapshot I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 of Revelation 21 just to get the juices going for us. Listen to this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Now there is so much here. There is the picture of a heavenly city descending. And in this heavenly city... This heavenly city is the place, the dwelling place of God. And what is God establishing in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the future heaven in which all those who trust in Jesus will live with God forever? He's establishing his dwelling with man forever. Again, why does this matter? Keep in mind, John, he wrote Revelation. John wrote Revelation where? On the island of Patmos. He was in exile. John was not living his best life and on Patmos. It was not a good situation. He was exiled. He was in a place where he did not want to be in a place with nobody. He was in exile. He was on Patmos. And guess what? John is telling the church, the Spirit of God through the Apostle John is telling the church, guess what? When heaven comes, do you know who will be there? God will be there. God will be there. To a church that was experiencing incredible persecution and suffering from the pen of an apostle who had experienced incredible suffering and persecution, the greatest hope and comfort that John can lead with and the descent of the whole heavenly holy city is this. God will be there. He assumes that that's the best part of heaven and that in the presence of God there are many blessings. Look at all of these things here. 
in verse 3, we find out that we will dwell with God forever in heaven. That's one of the things that will be happening. We'll dwell with God. We will make our habitation. We will be neighbors with God. We will live in the very presence of God. This is the central part of heaven. The psalmist, talking about the presence of God, says this, you will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. The pleasures of living with God forever. I wonder what those pleasures would be. I wonder what the presence of God contains that maybe we're just a little bit hesitant of giving our imagination and our attention to dreaming up. What will we do forever in heaven? Verse three of Revelation 21, we'll dwell with God. But look at verse four, we're going to be made new. We're gonna be made fully new. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. In future heaven, we are going to be given incorruptible bodies. You're gonna have bodies. You're gonna have skin, flesh, bones, muscle in heaven. And yet the ailments, the tribulations, the sufferings, and the sorrow of our present bodily existence now, they will be gone forever. Now, some of you know these palpably because you've experienced being on the other side of a diagnosis. Some of you know what it's like to be waiting for an oncology report. Some of you know what it's like to feel death in your body, in your womb, in your bones. And those of us who don't know it firsthand know it secondhand for those that we love. And I fear that maybe our culture of keeping our imagination away from mortality and frailty gives us a low degree of hope of just how great heaven is going to be on this front, where there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more sorrow, no more suffering, when our bodies will be free from them for good forever. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. We will be made fully new. Verse 5, the world will be fully restored. It says in Revelation 21.5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The world will be restored and renewed. It will no longer be marked by the impact of sin. It will be majestic. It will be a place of wonder. Have you ever been to a beautiful place? Just right now, think about it. Think about the most beautiful place you've ever been. Just consider it. Where is it? Was it the coast? Was it the mountains? Was it a forest? Was it a home that you felt safe in? Was it an island? Where is the most beautiful place you've been? Now just imagine you saw a broken version of that thing. Just imagine you, you saw a fraction of what God intends for you to see there. You, you, it was almost like you were looking through a screen. You were looking through a haze. Can you imagine such a thing? That the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen, the most beautiful place you've ever been, you saw like a diet version of it. You saw a thin, hollow version of what God intends for you to see in that place. I love the last battle, which is in the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the last books, telling the story of the end of Narnia. Sometimes when people ask me about my view of the end of the world, I just give them a copy of C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. I think you can do far worse than it. It's very good. But as the kids, as the heroes of the story, are kind of being wrapped up into this new world, the new Narnia, this is what they begin to say. They're looking at this new place, what is effectively heaven in the scope of 
Lewis's book. And they say, I bet there isn't a country like this anywhere in our world. Look at the colors. You couldn't get a blue like the blue on those mountains in our world. Is this not our world? Said Tyrion. Those hills, said Lucy, the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of the world we've known? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence. Why, they're exactly like. And yet they're not like, said Lucy. They're more, they're more, they're more like the real thing, said the Lord Diggory softly. The characters in the story are realizing that the most beautiful places that they had seen in the world before compared as nothing to what they were seeing now. The world will be fully made and fully restored. It will be marked by purity. Revelation 21, verses 24 through 27, we hear, By its light, by the lamp of the Lamb, by the lamp of the Lamb will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The new heavens and the new earth where we will live with God forever will be marked by purity and holiness. Now I know that maybe when we first hear that, that doesn't sound as cool as not dying and not suffering. It doesn't sound as incredible as having bodies free from disease and sickness. But I would suggest to you that one of the things that we often overlook about the hope of heaven is its purity, is its holiness, And we do this because we often underestimate the brokenness and the hideousness of sin in this world. And there is hideous sin in this world. There is brokenness of which we would prefer to never draw our attention to. There are places that are effectively forgotten by our minds that we would prefer to keep out of sight and out of mind because the brokenness of them, if grappled with primarily and directly could shatter our hearts. Heaven will be free from that kind of brokenness and hideousness. What grieves your heart that's broken in this world? It will no longer be true in heaven. We'll be free from it, and the world will be free, and the innocence affected by it will be free. We will worship God in heaven. Revelation 22, 3 through 4. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. We will worship God. And this worship just won't be singing. If worship is more than a song here, don't you think it'll be more than a song there? You know? Christians are very quick to be like, yeah, you know, worship isn't just what we sing on Sundays. It's what we do throughout the rest of our week. If that's true here, don't you think it'll be true there? Right? Like if if worship involves feasting and building and cultivating and exploring and playing and resting here, don't you think that'll be true there? It absolutely will be. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve weren't placed on a stage in front of a mic and Jesus said, you better get to singing, you know? That's not what happens. He says, cultivate and subdue, name the animals, have fun, have a party, enjoy my presence, live in relationship. That's what heaven will be like. I would imagine that in heaven, the living a life will be punctuated frequently with the outbreak of thanksgiving and praise as we live all of our lives in the glorious presence of God. 
we will worship in heaven. And that worship will be more than a song there because it's more than a song here. And lastly, probably the most neglected thing about what our life will look like in heaven, Revelation 22, 5. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Probably the most neglected aspect of what your life and not my life will look like in heaven is that we will be reigning. We'll be reigning. What will that look like? What does it mean that we will reign? It means that we will reflect God's purposes over all of God's place. We will extend his kingdom and dominion over the whole of the world. We'll stretch it out. We'll see what Eden looks like in Texas, not just between the Tigris and the Euphrates. We'll think about what Eden looks like on the Alps. We'll be people of Eden no matter where we go in God's good world. Adam and Eve were created to live in God's place, to extend his glorious presence and dominion over the whole of the world, but they failed. In heaven, we will be given this task again, and we will do it faithfully because unholy desires of our heart will be expunged forever. We will spend forever cultivating, expanding, exploring, laughing, feasting, playing, building, talking, crafting, making, imagining, creating, dreaming. Do you like playing Settlers of Catan? You know, if you really enjoy playing Settlers of Catan, you know what you might get to do in heaven? Play Settlers of Catan. You think I'm joking. Do you like reading novels? Do you like a good story? You might get to spend heaven reading some stories. Do you like feasting? You like having a party, right? Nobody likes feeling sick the day after. But do you like, if you like having a party this side of heaven, do you know what? You're going to get to have some parties in heaven. Do you like exploring? Do you like traveling the world? Do you like seeing the beauty of God's good creation? Guess what? You're going to get to do that in heaven. We're not just all living on the same block forever, singing Jesus karaoke as disembodied souls in heaven forever. That's not what heaven looks like. It's better than you can imagine. It's better than you can imagine. God has something incredible for us. The future of heaven isn't a place of stale, complacent life. It's a party you don't want to leave early. Heaven is a place of vibrant activity, infused by and surrounded by the glorious presence of God. What is the business of heaven? C.S. Lewis said, joy. Joy is the serious business of heaven. In another place in the last battle, I'll have the quote on the screen for you. Lewis writes this, the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world, all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's heaven. That's the glories of heaven. And I am begging us to start to talk about heaven more. We should talk about heaven more. One reason that we don't is because I think that we are deceived that we can create our own versions of heaven here. Many of us in life will come to a place where we feel the gap, where we experience the gap, where we experience that there are desires 
that seem to outweigh their fulfillment in this world. There's a gap that emerges where an unfulfilled longing remains unfulfilled, where a heart hurt or sorrow becomes too much to handle. When that gap sets in, we are given an opportunity. And more often than not, we use that gap and we try to fill it up. We say, all right, okay, uh, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's work harder. Let's make more. Let's go on more vacations. Let's buy better things. Let's fill up that gap. I can feel the gap in my heart. I know that my desires are outpacing their fulfillment. I feel this gap between the two. What am I supposed to do? So we just try to stuff things into it. And that's like grains of sand into a bottomless well. It never fills up. We try to fill it up. Or we try to distract ourselves from the gap. We try to not look at it. We try to hustle harder, do more, fill our schedules up because we don't want to live with the discomfort of the gap. And that doesn't work either. We just end up exhausted. Or we try to ignore the gap. Oh, it's not really there. Life is really great. Everything I ever wanted has come true. We give the mask of like, yeah, everything's good. I don't want to dig too much because I know there's something down there that's not. Or we live in despair. We say the gap is all there is. There's nothing more than the gap. It'll always be this way. We were created, this side of heaven, to live with that gap. That gap is always going to be there. You can't ignore it. You can't distract yourself from it. It's not the despairing pit that it may feel like it is right now, and you can't fill it up with anything else. That gap is there to tell you that you have desires that nothing in this world will satisfy, that will only be met in heaven. They'll only be met in heaven. The hope of heaven gives us a freedom to do two things, to be honest about that gap when some of us don't want to be, but to not get bogged down in a pit of despair, to cultivate the hope of heaven. Some of you live further on the spectrum of honesty. You live in a space where you're like, yeah, things are messed up. They're broken. They're jacked up. I know it in my life. I know it in the world. It's always going to be this way. It's always been this way. These people, they need the hope of heaven whispered to them. They need to be told, it won't always be this way. A king and a kingdom is coming, and the things that grieved you most now will be gone forever then. Others of us live so far on the hope side of the spectrum. We have a hard time being honest about the brokenness in our world because we're going, but isn't God good? Isn't what he's bringing better? And, and it is. And these people, they need to have the honesty of the gap whispered to them. And you need to remember, that it is not as it will be one day right now. We need each other. Some of us have forgotten that we were made for another world, a world where we will live in unbroken fellowship in the presence of God forever. And the grief that attends to that is a grief that we begin to believe that we can absolve ourselves of the gap today, and you can't. There are desires that only heaven will satisfy, namely the presence of God. He's inviting you to experience that today, if even a thimble of it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy in Jesus. We ask that you would fill us up and stir us up with the hope of heaven, that we would be a people that speak about heaven, that we would be a people who hope in heaven. I ask God that you would bless us. I pray for those among us who maybe have delayed reckoning with God. They believe that you are just looking at their life 
as one might look at the scales of justice, and they're just hoping there's more good than bad, I pray, God, that today would be the day of their salvation. Today would be the day where they receive the gift of grace in Christ. And they would know that their forever is not fixed to their own faithfulness or goodness, but to the faithfulness and graciousness of God. We pray these things in the name of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you stand with us as we receive the Lord's Supper?